0: Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, I'm Shona Thompson. What is at the core of artificial intelligence programming? Will the philosophical bent of the programmer somehow be baked into how it learns? We speak with tech analyst Carmi Levy. Critical thinking is more than ever an important life skill, and it should be taught to children early and often. Timothy Colefield at the University of Alberta speaks to the idea. If the cost of diesel, and therefore transportation, is down from last year why hasn't the cost of groceries declined at all? We'll put that question to Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now.
1: Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: As you have heard, the double strike in Hollywood by actors and writers is in part over the use of artificial intelligence. Actor and writer Simon Pegg recently spoke about it to Dave Barry of Absolute.
2: Have you ever thought to sit down with chat, GPT, and just go, right as a Cornetto movie? Yeah?
1: <laughs> AI could be amazing for us. I mean, you know, classically in the human way, we're terrified immediately. In terms of medicine, space travel, sort of environmental protection, it could zoom us forward into the future. When AI... Has its own feelings, then maybe it might be able to make up. Right now, all of copy, but in art, you know, art's a very human thing. So stay the hell out of our sandpit.
0: Jay, I wonder if the interference there was AI making its presence known. It has the possibility of changing a lot in our society. But what is at its core? Someone at least initially has to write the software program. So is their philosophy or perhaps bias somehow transferred into how? AI Learns. To help us understand this more, technology analyst Carmi Levy is joining us now. Good morning, Carmi. Good morning, Shauna. Great to be here. Uh, So have I watched too many sci-fi movies or can the personality of a programmer somehow be infused into the programs they write?
3: Uh, You haven't watched too many dystopian Hollywood movies. It's definitely possible because, uh, you know, if you look at the way artificial intelligence platforms are built, how they're trained, Uh, they're essentially sort of told to go out onto the open internet or other data sources and hoover up, vacuum up, grab as much information as they can to learn. So they'll go to websites, they'll go to social media feeds, they'll go to online communities and forums, wherever they can find data, and they'll just pull it into this massive database, this huge pile of information. And then they'll spend uh, huge amounts of computing resources to draw connections, parallels, linkages between all of those different pieces of data. It's an incredibly compute-intensive process, but it's sort of how it learns, how it realizes this is what the outside world looks and feels like. So a lot of it is dependent on what data it picks up. And so if the whoever is creating it decides to point that vacuum in a particular direction, they can introduce all sorts of biases into it. I'm going to pick this database, but not that one. I'm going to go to these websites, but not the other ones. Um, and then I'm, I'm going to shape it and play with it. Uh, and and it, a lot of it is dependent on what kind of information it picks up. It could be misinformation. It could be disinformation. It could be right, wrong, you name it. could be liberal, conservative, red, blue, take your pick. But what gets spit out the other side when you're using an artificial intelligence tool largely links back to all that information that was picked up and pulled in at the front end. And as we know, there's no such thing as truly unbiased. There will be biases there, and that's going to show up in the answers that we get when we use it.
0: Well, it's also interesting, one of the things, one of the descriptors you just made, um, you know, what is right, what is blue? Well, what is red, in Canada is blue in the US. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: that's exactly it, right? Who sets the rules, right? So you know within one national border the, the tendency is one way, right? The Conservative Party has a certain color here uh, and it's blue, which is very different from a Republican red. But who's the who's the global authority when AI systems are being trained? who defines that. And in many cases, those definitions are incredibly fuzzy. So not only are you pulling various information from all sorts of places in an uncontrolled manner, uh, but what that information represents, nobody agrees on. Uh, And so if humans can't agree on it, well, I'm pretty sure the machines can't either. And if we're trying to teach machines to think for themselves, it's all being based on an incredibly flawed foundation. Uh, And it means that the results that we get can sometimes be super unpredictable. They call it going rogue or hallucinating because we're not quite sure what comes out. I've, I've done, I've played with my own brand, my name on art artific- with artificial intelligence tools like ChatGPT, And in some cases it'll say things about me that are completely not true because Lord knows where it's getting that information from. I sure don't. Mm.
0: Well, and I think your point is well taken about the algorithms that are involved here, because, you know, we've all heard about the uh, sales algorithms, basically, marketing algorithms that have been used by Meta and Twitter. Sorry, X. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, so that if you go to, you know, if you have a tendency to be uh, right-leaning, in your thinking or left leaning in your thinking, it it sees that and it starts feeding back all that stuff to you. So it stands to reason that it would be doing the same for itself.
3: It certainly is because what artificial intelligence is doing, and anyone who's played with tools like ChatGPT or Google's Bard uh, in recent months kind of has already gotten a sense of it, They're trying to give you answers that they think you want to see. In other words, they wanna keep you engaged. It's very much like uh, what Meta is doing when it decides what to show you in your feed, whether it's organic content or advertising based content. It wants to keep showing you things that keep you on platform because the longer they keep you in their world, the more ads they can serve up, the more money they can make. It's one of the reasons why TikTok is so successful. The algorithms that TikTok uses are acknowledged to be incredibly sophisticated. And so you watch one video, you watch another video, and it is learning huge amounts of information on you serving up basically almost like the the tech equivalent of comfort food keeping you in so we've sort of had a taste of it on social media platforms because that's what they use for marketing now we're taking artificial intelligence and we're expanding its use cases to pretty much everything and so now everything that we do online is going to essentially follow the same playbook, but just at a much larger scale, at a much faster velocity, much more broadly. Uh, and it means that essentially we are being you know, kind of sold to all the time. Uh, interact with ChatGPT, for example, uh, and you keep asking it questions and you're going back and forth. You realize you can do this all day without even thinking twice.
0: Although I do remember that Star Trek episode with uh, Harcourt Fenton Mudd and all of the robots mm-hmm. that they just... You know, uh, used uh, illogic with, and it tilted them.
3: It's interesting because there's there's um, there's some research that suggests, and, and artificial intelligence engineers often say they don't fully understand. They they've designed these systems, but they don't always understand what's going on in them when they go off track, and uh, which is kind of scary. There, it's called the black box problem. And the problem here is that um, the longer you spend with uh, one of these tools, the more likely it is. Uh, that y- it will get thrown off track, that it will start to lie, start to go a little bit bonkers, start to hallucinate uh, in the terminology. And so in many respects, it's kind of interesting because a lot of what we're seeing now was almost predicted by Star Trek. Uh, you know, like, it, it's funny, we you, and and this isn't the first time that, that, that this has come up in an interview where literally every single episode of Char- Star Trek had almost like a precursor to this technology. No coincidence because... Many of the engineers who are designing the systems that we use today grew up on Star Trek, grew up on Star Wars, grew up on sci-fi. And a lot of these sort of fundamentals were planted uh, in those in those works. There's a reason why a smartphone looks and works the same way, you know, uh, this certain way. Um, in many cases, a lot of people say it comes directly from the tricorder. Weird, uh, but sci-fi eventually, in many cases, does become science fiction reality.
0: Well, smartphones are a mashup of the communicator and the tricorder. I'm such a nerd, you know, I'm really a nerd. (laughs)
3: And, and, but I think that's a good thing, right? Art should always imitate life and then life should always get back to art. And that's sort of what seems to be happening here. Uh, And, and what, what, what what kind of frightens me though is that we're not learning those lessons. We're not learning the lessons when technology runs amok, from when you know Captain Kirk over relied on the technology. Um, we're not learning sort of how to reinfuse humanity back into the equation. we're, we're almost taking the technology at face value. We've had you know close to you know, a quarter century of essentially doing whatever Google tells us to do, um, and now we're applying that to artificial intelligence, not questioning what's coming out the other side. And I think we need to, and we need we need to as consumers. Take the time to understand how these technologies work so that as we're going back and forth with them, we can shape that experience and not be led astray. We're kind of, you know, yet again, we're almost like ostriches, sticking our heads in the sand, pretending that we don't need to know what's going on underneath the hood. Uh, and frankly, we should. Well,
0: if you're correct, and most of the people who are writing the code and the, uh, the base software programs for AI are actually Star Trek, you know, aficionados. <laughs> Uh, maybe they will put in something in the secret sauce that will actually help humanity in the long run.
3: I certainly hope so, uh, and I, I certainly hope you, I, I'm a. I'm not the world. You know, the last thing I want is for the government to be standing over our shoulders and dictating our every move, digitally or not. Uh, but I think this is one area where we do need uh, laws in place to ensure that the industry behaves in that responsible manner, um, that we don't go off track, that there are limits and that there are guardrails and that there are consequences and accountabilities if we cross those lines um, and that everyone understands where those lines are. Uh, you know, we, we do have we know in the U.S. Chuck Schumer uh, is, is working with both sides of the House to kind of figure out what that legislative roadmap looks like. Here in Canada, we have Bill C-27, which is the update to the Privacy Act, but it includes components for artificial intelligence as well. And it will give us pretty much a world-leading framework for AI implementation. So I think, you know, Canada leads the way, which is great. Uh, but we need to keep that going and and just because this becomes law at some point over the next year or two doesn't mean that we stop there it is an ongoing conversation Uh, and as much as i want to believe and i work with developers every day as much as i want to believe that developers want what's good and they will infuse goodness Truth of the matter is, and we've learned this with digital technology thanks to cyber insecurity. There are plenty of others out there who would love nothing more than to use this technology against us. And so we need better legislative protections to ensure that we're reflecting the good stuff, but we're also protecting ourselves from the bad.
0: Absolutely. And no doubt, Carmi, we're going to have to call on you again at some point to give us more insight into what the heck is going on
3: here. I look forward to it. I mean, this is, you know, over the last, I say, you know, Half year or so since ChatGPT first became a thing, um, you know, my practice as a technologist, I'd say about half of the stories that I cover now have some form of AI in them. It has literally become the tech story of our time, um, and it's something that I, you know, feel very passionately about ensuring that we know as much as we can going into it, that our eyes are wide open, so that we can take advantage of the amazing promise of AI but also limit our exposure to the risks that it poses as well. It's a double-edged sword. We're walking a high wire. And, uh, you know, it's a major new era in technology. We owe it to ourselves to go in with our eyes open.
0: Yeah, with more impact uh, and repercussions potentially uh, than the Industrial Revolution. Carmi, thank you for your time. I always appreciate it. I always learn something.
3: Thanks so much, Shauna, as do I.
0: Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and a journalist.
1: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: There is a lot of misinformation out there, and it has caused a lot of division. People following rabbit holes down the internet to conspiracy theories. And when you hear some of what some people are convinced is true, you may do more than just raise an eyebrow. This has divided families, and it's caused more than a few heated arguments. But just try to convince someone that what they believe is not true. Seems the concept of critical thinking is being lost, and our children may need that life skill now more than ever. It's the focus of an article in McLean's magazine, and its author, Timothy Colefield, is with us. He holds the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. He's a professor at the Faculty of Law and School of Public Health, and in his spare time, he's the research director of the Health Law Institute, all of that at the University of Alberta. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: I am so glad you wrote this piece. Uh, well, it it's, seems to be
2: such a, an important part of the battle against misinformation, which I don't think gets you know, enough enough coverage. We talk a lot about, you know, countering misinformation and perhaps regulatory responses to to misinformation. But but really, this is a generational, a massive, massive generational issue that's going to require teaching critical thinking skills. And, I, and I, I think that that is the fundamental strategy that is going to be needed long term.
0: And and you're suggesting that it starts very young. Yeah,
2: that's right. You know, I think when people think about critical thinking skills, maybe they think about teaching it in university or or they think about, you know, maybe high school or middle school. But but really, um, we've got to start as early as possible. And so, you know, I, I think... I think kindergarten. Um, I, I think for sure, elementary school. We need to have it as part of our our curriculum. And and I want to be clear: there there are fantastic creative teachers out there that are doing exactly that already. Uh, but I, I think it needs to become a bigger part of 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 our school, our public school strategy. And, and two two really important points. Number one, I'm not you know because this immediately becomes political, right? What are you teaching my kids? Uh, the nice thing about teaching critical thinking, <clears throat> it's it's content neutral, right? You're not teaching kids what's right or wrong. And and that's where you get a lot of the political polarization. You're giving them the tools to make that decision themselves. Right. And, and I hope it's that's a politically neutral, you know, less contentious idea. Uh, the second point is this strategy has been utilized already very successfully in some countries around the world. And I talk about this in the piece. Um, in Finland, for example, they start they do start teaching in in kindergarten. And uh, they do it in a fun way just to give the kids the tools to have that, you know, scientific mindset, that critical thinking mindset that is going to be a benefit throughout their their life.
0: ok. How do you teach someone in kindergarten? Like, what are those lessons at that young age about critical thinking? I mean, obviously, it's not. Um, you know, dissecting whether or not say, what you've heard about COVID is true or not, blah blah blah. It's going to be something much more basic than that.
2: Yeah, that, that's right. And and you know, I think we can. You know, kids are. I've I've got kids. You know, and and when they're when they're that age, they're they're very curious. You know, I, I don't think it's going to take a lot to get kids to to want to use kind of investigative skills and so that in finland for example that's exactly what they do you know they use fairy tales and and uh, to you know have them solve a, a a mystery um some kids are 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 asked to to kind of act like Sherlock Holmes and and decide whether this this news article is is accurate Uh, as as kids get older, you can teach them about what kind of evidence is good evidence and what kind of evidence is weak evidence, which is a really, really important skill um, and one that isn't taught enough, I think. Um, So just just doing that. And by the way, there's also really good evidence that if you if you teach people just to pause and think about the things we just talked about, Often that does a lot of the heavy lifting on its own, right? Just just inviting people to think about accuracy before they, you know, believe something before they share something can make a real difference. And and I also want to be be clear, we all fall for misinformation, right? You've fallen for it, I've fallen for it, everyone falls for it. Uh, I'm not pointing fingers here. It's such a chaotic information environment. In fact, that's the point, right? We all need to have these skills.
0: Professor Caulfield, I am a journalist. <laughs> I do not fall for false information, <laughs> but uh, well, it's interesting uh, that you've written this piece because uh, I do teach at the college level, and uh, one of the modules I teach is how to tell the difference between fake news and real news. What is opinion? What is advertorial? What is actual fact?
2: You know, I, I love that. I love that. I was lucky enough to be involved in a project at the university of Alberta that also teaches critical thinking skills. It's, it's one of those free courses that anyone can take. If you Google, you know, science, literacy, university of Alberta free course or critical thinking free course, university, of Alberta, you'll find it and anyone can take it and and we try to do the same thing. Right. And, and I, I think teaching critical thinking can be fun. And, and the other thing I think it's important to recognize, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to the public a lot about these issues. And everyone agrees with this. This is not something that where there's you know a lot of debate. Oh, we shouldn't be doing everyone agrees that that Canadian citizens, our kids, teenagers, young adults need these skills. And and they and and when you talk to students, you know, young students, they want these skills. They wanna they want to investigate. They know this is a big issue. So I, I'm hoping this is a, a an area where we can really move the needle because I think, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, everyone's on the same page.
0: We're speaking with Timothy Caulfield, who has written an article in McLean's magazine about the importance of teaching critical thinking to children and to start really young um, in order to give them the tools to really disseminate what is fact from fiction. And you're saying um, also that it's really important now. I'm wondering, you know, the way the people... Went down certain rabbit holes in the last several years on the internet. Is is that the way they're getting this information? Is that part of how this kind of brainwashes some people?
2: Um, for sure, the the power of of social media, the power of our search engines like Google, they, they create our information environment now. Right, um, there've been there a lot of interesting research on on the power of algorithms for things like TikTok, you know, that pushes misinformation. And you know, if you're holding a phone and you're scroll- scrolling through TikTok, you know, some studies have shown as much as 20% of that content is filled with with misinformation. And if you if you don't have the ability to discern that relatively quickly, or at least pause and think about whether that's accurate. It, it can seep into your into your mindset layer on top of that our own cognitive biases that we all have we you know confirmation bias we have sort of political leanings you know we want to find content that conser- confirms our preconceived ideas all of that can lead to the you know the polarized environment that we we have right now um and, and by the way there is there is good news here too there have been a number of studies that have shown that this really can, can work there have been studies done at sort of the national level with finland and they found that that country is the most resilient country at least in europe in the context of fighting misinformation um hard to study this well i i realize that lots of variables but we've also seen more clinical clinical trial kind of studies that have found that if you teach populations and and young young uh, people these skills it can make a meaningful difference difference in how they assess the content that they're seeing?
0: Well, I think we've seen some real life consequences um, that can happen because of a lack of critical thinking. I mean, you know, f- the first thing we think of is what's been happening down in the United States. I mean, you know, Fox News is facing that billion dollar settlement over the reporting on uh, on the Dominion voting machines, which was all wrong
2: you're you're so right about that often whenever you talk about misinformation you know this has been my life for for a very long time everyone goes you know who decides what's misinformation and you know you want to censor people no we're not talking about that at all we're ta- even if you just focus on you know not the marginal stuff even if you just focus on the stuff that you know there are clearly lies like the big lie like what you just said or or the sandy hook lie the idea that sandy hook massacre didn't happen these are things that are demonstrably wrong and you know horribly so even if you just focus on those things and you see the the millions and millions of people that believe it and the political democratic consequences of those beliefs we can see what how much damage this misinformation can do, and I think there's no doubt, you know, that people are now starting to wake up to the reality that you know misinformation is becoming one of the challenges of our of our time. You know, it's killing people.
0: Absolutely, I used this example in a conversation earlier this morning on the air, um, and and that was Marco Mendicino, who was now out as public safety minister, um, and he was wearing a really thick coating of tar and feathers. For the Bernardo transfer from maximum to medium security prison, um, when it wasn't his decision and it wasn't his call to make.
2: Well, you know, I, I, unfortunately, and th- this kind of misinformation has been with us for uh, you know a very long time. You know, the, the political misinformation that is used to to buttress a particular a particular point of view. So you have sort of, and I call it the sort of this continuum of misinformation, right? Where on one side you have the the horrible, clearly wrong stuff that i just talked about uh, and then you have the manipulation of of facts in order to support a particular agenda and and the critical thinking skills i think i think maybe again being overly optimistic can help across that 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 spectrum right to make more informed citizens that can critique not only the completely absurd stuff right, but also that 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 twisted news that is used to to buttress particular particular positions. And and I think it's also important to be intellectually humble, right? Um, the, we all do it. We all do it, right? And to remind ourselves sort of to check our own biases and, and to try to get a sense of what's true, what's not, uh, and what can I do to find out the answers.
0: You know, you were talking earlier about starting very young in kindergarten or grade one with some very basic sort of things that would set the stage or lay the foundation for uh, kids to be able to learn critical thinking and to start to ask questions and make decisions. I think one of the things that was foundational for me was um, being in debate club in, in high school
2: uh i was in debate club too <laughs> hard to believe right hard to believe. um uh and yeah you know the idea of bringing together um facts in order to support an argument i think is really important and the other great thing about things like debate clubs is often you're forced to take the other side right uh and that gives you this different perspective on, on on a topic um and look it's only going to get more challenging in the future am i right you know with ai um having these skills i i just think it's going to be impossible to have technological solutions and and sort of content moderation solutions that are going to solve this we need to have the skills to do to discern the the nonsense from the good stuff Uh, Otherwise, you know, I think we're going to be lost.
0: Well, and and to bring this around to one of your specialties, which is law, I mean, we have the adversarial um, uh, standards or method of of discerning facts and reaching uh, decisions in court cases. Um, And so often, if you break it down into critical thinking, you can have two different sides that both have good weight to their position and if you if you're able to really critically think, then you can figure out how you feel about these things.
2: Yeah, that that's right. But 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 we also need to be careful not to fall into a false balance uh, mindset, right? Which is, you know, I know in in the area in in the journalism world, this is you know a topic that's often discussed. And by false balance, I mean you know often there is a weight of evidence on one side. There's a body of evidence that supports one side. And too often, and we've definitely seen this play out over the past three, four or five years, um, sides are presented as equal, right, uh, from a scientific perspective, when that's not the case at all. When you know, 98% of scientists believe one thing and there's some very loud um, voices on the other side, and it's presented in the, in the public as, as if these sides are equal. Uh, so we also need to be careful to always use a weight of evidence approach, right? Not, not to completely dismiss those minority views, but to always remember there's a body of evidence, there's a weight of evidence, there's a scientific consensus that needs to be to be considered. Uh, And too often, and I can just list a whole bunch of topics where this is overlooked, that doesn't play out appropriately in the public sphere. I
0: think that is a very important standard that people need to realize. And uh, news organizations debate all the time. Thank you so much for your time. We have to go.
2: Thanks so much.
0: Timothy Colefield is the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, is professor at the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health. And as I said, in his spare time, he's the Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. The article is called Big Idea, Teach Kids About Misinformation, and it's in McLean's Magazine.
1: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
0: CHML. The price of gas is roughly a buck sixty-eight in southern Ontario. Have you seen the price of diesel? It has been below the price of regular gas for some time now, and it was toted as one of the reasons why food prices were so high. So how come we haven't seen any real price reductions at the grocery store? In fact, the opposite. Well, we'll find out now from Marvin Ryder of the DeGroote School of Business. So Marvin, what is going on?
1: Well, if you don't mind, let's break this into a couple of chunks. Speaking specifically about diesel, um, the supply of diesel has gone up and thus the price of diesel has come down. But what we've seen with the trucking companies is when the price of diesel was higher, they put a surcharge on their delivery cost. In other words, they'd say, well, normally this load would cost you $1,000, but because of the high price of diesel, I'm charging you 1100 and they haven't removed the surcharge. Yes, the price of diesel has gone down. There is no good reason to have the surcharge, but they've kept that surcharge on. So whether it's the grocery store or a wholesaler or a restaurant, they're still paying for it indirectly. And you would ask a good question, why is it still there? I can tell you, you'll see the same thing with airlines and other institutions who temporarily raise prices to cover high fuel costs but they haven't temporarily lowered them either.
0: So, Marvin Roddy, are you telling me I cannot blame Galen Weston for this?
1: Well, you can blame Galen Weston for some things, but you can't blame him on this side. The trucking companies themselves have not reduced the prices. Uh, you know, they claim they have other costs now that they're they're doing. Now, this, I said we are going to break this into two chunks. Earlier this week, the Loblaw companies announced their um, second quarter, second quarter, not their full year, Second quarter sales and profit results, and horror of horrors, Loblaw Companies profits are up 31 percent compared to a year ago. Profit of I think it's around a half a half a billion dollars, five hundred something million dollars. Uh, and you go, wait a minute, I thought I thought you were struggling here, Loblaws. Now it is worth remembering that the Loblaw Companies are not just the grocery stores. They includes Shoppers Drug Mart. It includes PC Financial. And, of course, that's the banking and credit card part, which have really good profit margins, along with Joe Fresh, the clothing line, which has really good profit margins. Nonetheless, it is a little peculiar to see uh, grocery stores saying we're struggling during this time and yet to see profit up nearly 31%.
0: So uh, with that profit, I mean, you mentioned, and quite rightly so, that Loblaw is a group of companies. Um, so is it, is it the grocery chain that has only a small margin?
1: Again, the argument is that the grocery chains have a net profit margin. In other words, out of every $100 I spend, the profit margin is only about 4%. So out of $100 I spent, they make about $4 profit. That is not the most profitable part of the Loblaws companies. Again, no shock here, Uh, the drugstores have a better profit margin. The clothing line has a better profit margin. The credit cards have a better profit margin. So if I want to pat Galen Weston on the back, I'd say bravo for you for diversifying the base away from groceries into these other things that have higher profit margins. But to the average person on the street, when you hear that the Loblaw company's profits are up 31%, you tend to focus only on the grocery side. You tend to focus on the fact that food inflation is still running at 9%. Grocery stores say there's nothing they can do about it. It makes you think that there is a little wiggle room here. Maybe, maybe okay, yeah, grocery prices should be up 7%, but they could probably absorb a percent or two and really not affect their bottom line all that much. But for the moment, they're not doing that.
0: No, and they could also start pressuring some of the uh, the transportation companies, the, the trucking companies, to remove that surcharge.
1: Yeah, you know, you're again, you're absolutely correct. Now, this doesn't just affect grocery stores. So if we take a look at Walmart and Costco, they are certainly sell groceries, but they sell a lot more than that. They too have been paying these surcharges. Now, again, we don't want to get into the world of collusion where we say to them, okay, why don't the five of you get together and go to those trucking companies and tell them to remove those surcharges because that's collusion and that's against the law. But just on their own individually, they could push back a little bit more. It's not clear to me that they are. I think, in fact, what many of these stores are doing is saying, look, back in 2020 and 21, when we had COVID, people couldn't go out to stores. They were sheltering at home. Our profits took a bit of a hit. We've got a chance to make a little more right now, and for the moment, they're doing that. But again, I think this is where we as consumers can choose by where we spend our dollars. And if we find companies that seem to be giving us more of a break, I would patronize them. That would teach a little lesson to the big chains.
0: Uh, we're speaking with Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Now, Marvin, when we spoke earlier, one of our previous conversations, you were talking about the price of gas for this summer. Um, and it is about where you have predicted it was going to wind up being. And that was even before we had the price squeeze from Russia and OPEC.
1: Right. Well, actually, it has crept up just a little bit. I, I thought we'd see gasoline prices for a regular uh, regular gasoline running between a buck fifty and a buck fifty five per liter, now it's crept up over a dollar sixty, and that's because the price of oil has crept up to eighty dollars a barrel. Uh, OPEC is thrilled with this. OPEC would love to see oil at ninety dollars a barrel, maybe even hundred dollars a barrel. Um, and it's again, it's not clear to me exactly why the price of oil has gone up. Nothing really significant in the supply side has happened, but when we do talk about the price of oil, we talk about it in terms of future delivery. And I think the saber-rattling that has been going on between Ukraine and Russia has caused the market to be a little worried. Look, if, if Russia's not going to allow grain out, what is the world going to do? How are they going to retaliate? Are there more restrictions coming? And uh, so I think oil prices have, have bounced up a little bit because of the fear of that war. But I, I'm sure they'll come down again. So. Take advantage of it when it's down in the dollar fifty range, and when it's to the buck sixty, try to coast a little bit on fumes.
0: Yeah, buy low as always, Marvin. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Happy to be with you, Shauna.
0: Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroot School of Business at McMaster University.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.